Hey Bizo, how are you? I'm good, thanks Julie, how are you? I'm alright, thank you. What have you got for me this week? This week I have Ancient Greens for Modern Me- Modern Meals yeah. by Maria Speck. Can I have a look? Yeah, sure. Ooh, very pretty. Yeah, so it's all about um, cooking with different types of greens, including some that you might not never heard of before. But uh, Maria is a big, big advocate of greens. I have to say got pearl barley on the front or it looks like pearl barley to me and i love pearl barley we should get ben in look at him he's doing the (laughs) it's not he's like the the mystery guest in every episode yeah (laughs) he's actually cooking for dinner tonight in here oh is he yeah with him sean from bucci and danielle from bucci nice yeah it's a um so danielle did um a charity event oh, okay. last year, and one of the prizes is um, oh, a, a dinner, dinner for twelve. Yeah, cooked by the three chefs and and doing it in, in eating here. in here. Yeah, well, it's a nice place to have dinner. Right? Yeah, it? it is nice. If I don't say so myself, <laughs> that's the idea, Julie. You got to <laughs> pump yourself up. <laughs> All right. So how yeah. many how many copies of this do you have available? I have three left of this one at forty five dollars each. Yeah. Um, hardcover. It is a nice book. Um, admittedly, I actually want to cook some things from this. I was looking at the recipes the other day, and uh, Maria was saying she she's not advocating like diets or whatever. No, but it's it's more gone, like an interest. Yeah, and since she's started cooking with whole grains, yeah. we're not talking about refined grains or anything like that. She's found that she's just been a lot healthier. Yeah, yeah, yeah and well, a lot more happier as well with. When when I I had a very bad virus when I was um, when I was a teenager that knocked me around and the, the naturopath said, you know, no bread, no yeah. this, no that, and yeah. and it was sort of like, oh, what is wheat bad? And he's like, well, not really. He said, mm. but processed wheat is. He's yeah. Like, if you want to get some whole grains and grind them and make your own bread, then go crazy. Yeah. Gladstone didn't really have many whole whole grain bakeries back in the <laughs> So are you doing it now 90s. in Lantana land? No. No, grains are hard. Yeah. Just even... And I've got small kitchens, so storing oh, and stuff like that's true. not easy. That's what Maria was saying as well. She said, you know, don't buy too much because mm. whole grains have a very short, short lifespan, so yeah. buy as you need it. But she said you can also keep it in the fridge. Yeah. If you if you know you're not going to use it up straight away. Yeah. Which is a good tip for people. Okay. Yeah. So come into Scrumptious Reads and buy ancient grains. For modern meals. For modern meals. Cool. See Thanks, you next week. Bye. We, we we should wrap up things that we like, like like food. That's what you bugging us. Definitely know it. We're gonna be like the Partridge family, but with food. You like food, don't you? Got any uh, white bread? Yes. Go away. I am the spaghetti. Duval, you're not the spaghetti. I am the spaghetti. Let go of the lid. Just spaghetti in here. Is this organic? Sure. Is it grass-fed? Yes. Cruelty-free? What's so special about the cheesemaker? As the saying goes, you are what you eat. And I am freaking cheese. Eating crackers. How about four beans, Mr. Taggart? I'd say you've had enough. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm Bezo, and this is Cheesy. And this week we have Sophie Munn, who looks like she is the expert in Brisbane on all things seeds. What's that one, Sophie? Kangaroo grass. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, I've, got to, I've got to um so I, I own a little bit of property down which is mostly lantana down towards um Yatla. and one of the things that i'm slowly trying to do is get more native grasses trying yeah. to get a, a bigger range of um native grasses in yeah in, really in. smart thing to so, do yeah well especially since we're in a weird um pocket behind tambourine mountain that we unless it rains in southeast Queensland we miss out on a lot of the storms so my place is almost dead dry at the moment so are you not up that high you're not no no so we're sort of so if you were um 
uh, Ormo, if you came in off the highway at Ormo, sort of yes. 10 minutes, we're yes. basically just in there on that bean, bean leader by desert road. Okay, yes. Um, so sort of, yeah, hilly, not mountainy. Yeah, That's right. Completely different. Like you go up the mountain and it's like a... Rainforest. Yeah, different Rainforest sort of world species. and everything's lovely and green and yes. lush and my place is, is basically dead at the moment. So. Yeah. But, um, oh, yeah, yeah, the native... I've talked to the guys at... There's a, uh, a mob down in South Australia, I think, that sell native grasses. Okay. Um, and the funny thing is most of their stock goes to mining companies yes, for, that's re- right. for regeneration. It's yeah. hugely expensive to buy seed because yes. they just sell it all. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that's just one of the little the little goals I've got for Lantana Land to try and increase the, the mix of grasses. So. That's fantastic. Well, mm. where I spend quite a bit of time on residency, mm. Plant Bank, which is down south of Sydney, yeah. they've got a huge project on native seeds. Seeds. They might actually be trying to get some for seed for people to grow too. Yeah. I'll have to check that for you. Well, the other one I was that you've got here, which is the Davidson Plum. Yes. And... That is one. I've got a list of so I'm slowly building my orchard out, and that that is one that, that I've got that's fairly high up my list of of the native uh, fruit trees that I want. Yeah. Have you ever seen them? I have actually. Yeah, they're, um, they're ma- amazingly visual plants. Yeah, beautiful, and and what's fantastic is they're really local to here. Like yeah. this Mullumbimby North. I'm not quite sure where North too, but. That's a really, you know, it's yep. from this region. <laughs> which makes me laugh about the finger limes, which are also very indigenous and yes. I struggle to grow the bloody things. Yeah, wrong climate, do you think? Uh, yeah, probably maybe not rainforesty enough. And also people have told me sometimes they do better if you plant them under yeah. something else. Oh, okay. So that layered thing that happens. Yeah, I know that I've, I've killed, I killed the first couple I got because I planted them in the ground and my yes. soil is very clay based and okay. it rained and basically they don't like sitting in water yes you know they're like a nice sort of open soil yeah and, and you drown them so <laughs> <laughs> i find lots of interesting and varied ways to kill fruit trees so, <laughs> so oh, actually i was going to ask you talking before about pine nuts mm. what can you tell me about pine nuts are they uh, well i always think of uh, like it's just are a, they from asia like they're I'm not even sure where they originated. Are they originally from the Middle East? Um, Are they from China? I mean, I'm really not yes. sure. Um, yeah, I think they are from... I think they're more from the Middle East. But from what I've heard is they're the simplest... One of the simplest foods to grow because, you you know, the, the tree grows, the, the pine nut falls, and you just tap them and out they come and they're ready to go. You don't have to oh. roast them. You don't have to... Um, like, like there's not really much to to do to them, and they're yes. hugely expensive. Yes, I don't know why. Look, it would be really interesting to know what's their best climate and everything to grow them in, because I don't know that they are growing them in Australia, really. Uh, yeah, no, they. they I, I don't think they're grown commercially, um, which which seems strange, but they do have a quite wide. Um, like they'll grow quite a few different places. Like yes. they grow quite happily in Queensland. They'll grow in Melbourne. Yes. Um, and I've got truffles on the. I paid quite a bit of money for my plant because it's got truffles impregnated in the in the roots of it. Oh my goodness! So <laughs> it's it's one that I take a lot of, of care, care of. Yeah. Oh my so. god, that's amazing. There you go. Well, um, what I was saying before to you when we were talking the bunyan nut, which is a, very much a local regional species. Yeah. That. Even though the um, the entire pine cone is huge, and the season is about now, and the traditional, you know, indigenous people years and years ago, before way before um, there was any white settlement here, they had a a festival every few years that people apparently would travel a long way, like from all over New South Wales and Queensland, to come up. to Bunyan Mountain, probably. Yeah. I'm not even sure of the, and what the spot. Them. They would harvest. They would have celebration. They would have, you know, a huge gathering. Yeah. And it was a big festival, so it was very important. But funnily enough, when I have tried them at um, a food fair, 
they um, they were roasted. They tasted fantastic. People always say that you can make pesto out of them. They're yep. a little, little bit like, even though they don't look like it. Yeah, they're a little bit like pine nuts in the way you can use them. Yeah, well, I would rather use um, you know fresh macadamias than than pine nuts usually in in pesto. Yes. Um, but um, I was wondering who was coming in the door. It's Julie. Um, so here you go. Asian it looks like a- Asia and, and sort of northern Europe, Russia, um, Scandinavia. For pine nuts. Yeah, and then there's a North American species as well, ah. right down to Mexico. So there you go. They're sort of it's everywhere. Very versatile. Um, Native Americans used to. There you go. Oh, they're all over the place. So yeah, I'm 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 sort of keen on on my edible, yeah, anything anything edible that I can grow, especially if it's a little bit unusual. Yes. Um, I don't know whether I don't think I don't think we'd be cold enough for pine nuts in Brisbane, would we? Uh, for bunya nuts in Brisbane. Like you can grow them here. You can. Like this is actually a region where they oh, come okay. from. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, I've just people... always had that association of them sort of up in cold areas no no actually um up right up you know well bunya mountain Mullaney, like all around uh you know people have gone out from brisbane to places where there's bunya yeah it's growing abundantly in the past yeah. and uh, around brisbane various places have got them growing like right. the botanic gardens have got a whole grove oh, okay. and they've got a sign so when it's harvest time they just won't they basically suggest that you don't walk anywhere near them because they're the maybe, size of a football. Maybe I should and um, so heavy. walk around with a basket and, <laughs> and catch a few and see whether I can make some bunion nut pesto. Yeah, I think you should. Look, a few years ago I noticed that more people were getting aware, becoming aware. Yeah. Uh, and so people could just post on Facebook or something and find out if anyone had you know had some that they didn't want to use. use yeah because it's great to try and are they is, is the nut hard to extract from the the pine the cone no no just... no and the weird thing is i was just drawing them i've just spent a month in in plant bank in sydney yeah at one of the botanic gardens down there which has got this huge seed bank and um the director was out in the garden he found one of the he found two of those big cones yeah and he brought them down for me to draw and i was sitting there for about I don't know, 10 days in my studio, and it just started to open. I mean, and it's a little bit like the structure of a pineapple, really. Oh, okay. You know, it had that kind of the same sets, texture and look, but it just, you know, comes apart. Yep, and then and, the nuts sort of fall and out. And the of nuts that. are really easy to get at okay. when it's at that stage of ripening. So the, the seed bank down in New South Wales, is it just doing um, natives or is it doing Only everything? Yeah. No. And the interesting thing about it, like how I got started on all this is in 2010. No, I had started a seed project. I'm a visual artist, but yep. I'd started working with seeds much more seriously and thinking maybe this isn't just going to be a motif for my artwork. Maybe I'm going to explore it and look at it on all different levels. And I was really curious. I've moved to Brisbane and I thought, I want to know what's, what's edible that's here. So anyway, somebody said to me, you should go to the seed bank out at Mount Cutho. They've got a little seed lab. And um, they've got volunteers that come in and help work, and you should meet the guy that's running it. So anyway, I contacted him, and he said, yes, come out. And then he said to me, why don't, why don't you spend a bit of time in here uh, on the days volunteers come? So while I was there talking to everybody, I was learning so much stuff, and then I put together a, a project idea because I heard they had a residency program. In, and, you know, so I applied and they just decided I was really lucky given it's so competitive yeah, that right. they chose my project, partly because I think, I, like I did get to hear later that they said nobody had ever focused on this project. Okay. People in Brisbane didn't even know it was there. Yeah. And um, it was the International Year of Biodiversity coming up and I was proposing to really, you know, sort of open that whole story up. So, um, and it gave me the chance to just learn so yeah. much stuff yeah. and, and these projects like the one at that botanic garden the big botanic gardens in each state of australia have a similar um, project it's it's sort of a, an underrated um and there's that that whole sort of um the the commercial pull on seeds versus the the biodiversity and the you know the maintaining some of the like the 
not not necessarily the the history history, but the genetic history yes. of it, w- without it all sort of becoming standardised. Yes. Um, and you know, I know is it there's somewhere in Russia or somewhere where it's very cold, and they've got you know one of the largest seed banks in the world where they basically freeze oh, yes. everything so that you know it stays in stasis and you can come back 50 100 150 years now yes. from now and pull the seeds out and take them to the right climate and plant them and away you go yeah so that's um called svalbard yeah and it's in the arctic circle in norway in norway and okay, that was yeah. set up partly with the norwegian government but with um an organizing body called the global crop diversity trust yeah and also like australian government is a donor yeah so quite a number of governments and businesses and institutions are donors and private families. The, the best ever seed saving story, I've got a, a couple of permaculture books and this lady's got a permaculture book and she was writing about when she was first starting to get into permaculture and she was going out with this bloke and um, she his mother was really into permaculture and um, they were up visiting and she was walking through the garden and... Um, she's noticed all the, the snow peas and they, all the snow peas had these pretty little pink ribbons tied tied around them. She's like, oh, look at these beautiful snow peas. And she's walking along, picking the snow peas, eating them, not realising that mum had tied the ribbons on the best ones. To save. To, to, you know, don't eat these, I'm saving the seeds for next year. She, she said she went along and ate all the... All the ones with the ribbons. All the ones with the ribbons on because they were the best looking ones. She said she didn't get invited back after that. So. Oh, that's tragic. Yeah, it's very serious. People, and you know, what I've had to appreciate because I've now worked at about three or four different seed banks. Yeah. Um, and they're all connected. They're all connected to Kew Gardens, who set up a really very famous place called the Millennium Seed Bank. Okay. And they have very strong, tight protocols about all the processes. Yeah. So everything's at, you know, like 20 degrees below zero or, yeah. or whatever. Like, you know. There's temperatures yeah. and processes and and yeah a lot of well, you a know, lot of research to, to work out what's the best way to save things. And it's not it's not just a sort of an abstract scientific thing. Like at at some stage that might be the only way to reintroduce some of those species back in. Yeah. Um, there was a really good article uh, I think in the Atlantic in the US about a month ago talking about. European food, fresh food versus American fresh food and how uh, the different sort of, you know, America is sort of one market, you know, there's Mm. not as much locality and so, and people in America, well, the mainstream people in America want to eat tomatoes all year round, so they've really bred into those tomatoes they've got to be able to be survive in a longer period of climate and then they've also got to be transported they've got a store and sort of taste is you know 15 16 things down the list absolutely but i think that'll actually flip around eventually when people will go you know you want to eat food that tastes good yes and it'll be seeds like that or you know from somewhere somewhere saving seeds that's you know got the the old strains of tomato it's, and yeah, the old strains absolutely. of beans that have those massive amounts of flavour. Yeah. I got some um, uh, tomatoes from, uh, what's it's not Eden Seeds, it's their organic sort of counterpart. Oh, yeah, I'm just trying to the, think. The, the really big ones, the, um, the, the beefsteak ones, the, you know, they're all oh, crinkled, yeah. they look a little bit like a pumpkin. Yes. Um, and I grew them in my front garden just where the, um, the laundry water used to go and... I think the biggest one I grew was 950 grams. That's amazing. <laughs> and it was it was out of this world, the yes. flavour. Yeah. Like, it, it just, comparing that to, but it was also, you only had to touch it and you could sort of push your finger into it. It was so soft. Yes. You know, not not really a commercial, um, a commercial strain of tomato, but... Yeah. Yeah. You know, not well, so- especially the way we do commerce now. The way no. things are trucked everywhere. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I think I think people are sort of starting to realise that um, you know it's not going to be cheap. But if you want things to taste good and you want to support, you know, the little local guy that's just down the road, yeah, then you might have to pay a little bit more. Yeah, they do. And also, the more people get involved in cooperatives and yeah. uh, community gardens and 
and the more markets there are like sometimes you do get really good prices on things in season yeah and they will be cheaper than going to the supermarket well Northy Street I did my permaculture design at Northy Street oh, yeah. City Farm and the, the garden I like that they're the best is they're sort of like they've got their market gardens out the back where everything's planned and sort of and then the, the garden's closer to the kitchen where they just move the chooks around and they don't they don't really plan them out or plant anything. They more sort of um, let things basically come up, you know. So the seeds fall and acclimatise and change and, you know, you've got 50 different types of leafy greens and 15 different types of sort of tomatoes that have, what you know, whatever does the best sort of comes back. Yes. Um, but the flavour you used to get out of that stuff oh, was just yeah. was great. And it was all sort of, you know, there was no nice... It was not like we'll go here for the tomato patch. It was all sort of speckled in about and hidden underneath and you'd sort of have to That's find great. it. I like that. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's funny what you're talking about. The um, food that's grown by small local people, uh, they need to... They've got new distribution happening for that, which yeah. know, I've met people like... Um, Food Connect in Brisbane, yep. and they make a point of finding all the people that are doing more ecological farming, small, yep. on the whole, it's pretty small scale, and they distribute. So they're the centre point, they're the hub. What's the, um, there's also the, oh, and I always forget this resource, it's like a, um, it's like a sharing resource and you, you just put in your suburb and anyone that's got excess lemons or chilies yes, or eggs okay. or whatever you and like you can just put it up and you say oh, okay well i want six bucks for a dozen eggs or yes. um quite often you see like passion fruit someone's got passion fruit and they're like well just come you know come, come and get, get it <laughs> if you want them like just rock up and there'll be a bag next to the door and and yeah um, i actually notice a lot of um on facebook like that's where you see all these alternative things happening yeah. Um, just somebody I know up at Sandgate did one and everybody up there is always sharing, you know, I've got this, I've got that. Or they put a price if there's, you know, yeah, that's right. obvious value, like for really good eggs. Uh, and the amount of things that are getting shared and they're now doing little markets out of that. Yeah. But not in a big way. Just, well, you know, they're just creating dates and everybody in the community hears about it. And Like my, my grandmother um, and my mum talk about my mum's grandmother and like in her day in Gladstone and you sort of everybody grew a couple of different types of fruit yes and so and you always knew someone that had something in season so if you didn't have lemons someone down the road might have lemons or they'd have mangoes or they'd have something and so you bought food but a lot of that food just naturally got shared out. That's right. Anyway. Because people had a different relationship to living in their homes too. Like it wasn't True. high walls. You know, there were low fences and most people had a backyard. Yeah. And I remember talking to people who, you know, grew up like, you know, 50... Oh, oh they were in their 70s when I talked to them and they just said people were in and out of each other's houses. Yes. And when you're living like that, you're yep. naturally going to start sharing. Well, I think, too, um, a lot of people move a lot more now. Yes. So, like, I know when we first got married and we moved into a little neighbourhood in Red Hill, um, and it took us uh, a couple of years to sort of even get to know the neighbours. So if you're only there for six or seven years, yes. you know, you only just get to know people and then you sort of, you're gone and you can't grow a fruit tree in seven years. No, no. Even though I was saying to someone yesterday, I planted a, a lime tree in the front yard of that house. Um when when we first moved in and I never got a lime off it but every time I go past I, I, I drive past and there's this beautiful lime tree just covered <laughs> in limes and, I just, uh, and it's still a rental so yeah someone's someone's, someone's enjoying limes at their coronas that I didn't I didn't get any out of so uh, but that's nice so so what yeah. other interesting food seeds have we got here we got any other food ones well probably the macadamia but uh, that looks like I don't know I Sometimes collect macadamias when I go up to my nephew's place near Butterham. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'd love to just go up there and get a whole lot. I've often brought them back to my studio and I've been painting or drawing them or whatever. But, you know, I've, I keep meaning to go up there and harvest them, really. And do you particularly like the, the natives to paint and and, um, and draw? Or do well, you like any, find, anything? Um, 
I realised I grew up in Grafton on the Clarence River yeah. and went to school and I studied piano from the time I was about eight and I learnt European music. So I played Bach and whoever and I did really like that music. But at school I learnt European history. Yeah. I went right through, even though there were Aboriginal kids in my class, there was really nothing I ever learned about their culture at all yeah. for over that whole time I grew up in that location. And for years I just felt like something was missing and I didn't really know what. And I'd always wanted to go to Europe and I had a big trip and stayed for a couple of years when I was in my 20s. But when I was teaching as an artist, as an art teacher, um, it just occurred to me that there needed to be a focus on, on Aboriginal art. Yeah. And... But it took a really long time for that to end up in the curriculum. So it was only in the 1980s where in New South Wales when I was teaching at the time, they decided they might get an Indigenous person to go and work with some teachers and and encourage them to look at Aboriginal art and so on. What I I really like now is, and it's a bit of a funny one, but you're seeing, um, you're really seeing the Aboriginal artistic culture bleed through into areas that you would never think to see it like i was talking to um uh, the guy i do my other podcast with and he's a a um a massive uh, motorsport fan yes and there's a team in the bathurst 12 hour and every year they take their car to bathurst like a month before and give it to the local aboriginal artists down there and go <laughs> do, do, do whatever you like yeah, guys yeah. and and that's their and that's their race you know that's their race paint so ah. just and and i think that's sort of it's really interesting because that's bringing it to a completely different audience really great new audience yeah outside of um and even um my flatmate and i were looking at all the um football jerseys that they've got for this year for the indigenous rounds ah. and looking at all the different artworks and saying oh isn't it really interesting how that you know this team's gone this way Yes. And like even within that sort of really narrow band of of type of art, yes. it was interesting how uh, all the different teams had gone in completely different directions within sort of one art style. Which Isn't I'm, that interesting? Well, you can imagine, like I think that things have changed in the last six years. Yeah. Like in terms of people being interested in what food Indigenous people ate, yeah. what's out there. Because when I first went to Mount Cuthra and did that residency, I sort of asked around and I found people who were really serious growers of unusual things. So they were getting into stuff. They knew about all this stuff and they were trying to use their resources and knowledge and share that with more general community. But now I'm finding like you talk to much more, um, you know, you don't have to find specialists now and people are experimenting. And same in restaurants. In my, like I work in the butcher industry and when we when I remember about six or seven years ago, one of our suppliers tried to do um, a native range of stuffings and they had to pull it because they just couldn't find the people to supply them with the ingredients to make oh, it on yeah. a commercial scale. Like they could yeah. make it in small batches in the in the test lab yes. and it was fantastic stuff. And we were like, bring it on, you know, like, um, you know, using bush tomato and aniseed myrtle and and pepper leaf from Tasmania and stuff like that. Yeah. But when they tried to actually source it into a, like even into a small commercial sort of thing, it just wasn't around then. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and now you look at yeah. you look at things like finger lime and and um, and even lemon myrtle. Like it's, it's it's stuff like that's out there everywhere if you know, if you know yeah. where to look. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really quite exciting. I just noticed a new book the other day. There was a. A food critic in Sydney, John Newton. I didn't. I don't remember reading his writing, but he's just brought out a book on. I can't remember if the title is "The Oldest Food in the World," but it's basically a book exploring what is now thought to be the oldest food in the world. Yeah. <laughs> and he, I, I just saw a review yesterday, and he talked about uh, culinary reconciliation. Because he reckons that what we should do on Australia Day oh. is actually like plan, you know, people plan for Christmas Day. They yeah, work yeah. out we're going to have this and this and this food. He said, like, why don't we all plan for 26th of January so that we actually taste all these things that are new to a lot of us yeah. and celebrate what was here for millennia. And he said, and then that's 
we'll we'll taste the flavors of this country and yeah. who think, thinks that's a brilliant form of reconciliation yeah because well, it's very natural in I've just started watching, and I've only just, just, just started watching it, but it looks like um, Michael Pollan's new series, um, Cooked, on Netflix, and I think it's going to have a lot of, um, not just Aboriginal, but a lot of Indigenous culture food, and in terms of, like, his big thing is, you know, that that cooking, and and particularly cooking with fire, is what separates us out, and, you know... And sort of, in a lot of cultures, gives it that sort of throughput of their food. Yes. You know, is, is the fire is what, you know, what makes it what it is. So, yeah, mm. yeah. So all those unique flavors. Well, I that was one thing I was really interested with my project. I, I called my project homage to the seed because it's a way of looking at the actual seeds that exist and collecting them and finding all that diversity. But it's also a way of looking at culture. Yeah. Because you can look at all the cultures all around the globe and when you start to look at, well, what plants did they have? Then you start to see all the cuisines that yeah. came from the plants. And, yeah, animals, of course, have been really important. But in some cultures, animals haven't actually been that that much available. Yeah. So people really learn how to use wow. all these amazing plants. That, the story like that that always interests me, and I'll probably get it a little bit wrong, but, like, in Europe... Um, you know, salt and pepper were marks of being, you know, you were sort of upper class. If you had salt and pepper to season your food because it was so rare and so hard to get, Mm. you know, only rich people could season their food. And then when, was it Marco Polo? Someone brought chilies back um, from Asia Mm. and, and, you know, brought them especially into Eastern Europe and all of a sudden they were growing something that was easy to replicate and easy to grow that added spice to food and it sort of really opened up the cuisine because then poor people could do whatever they liked to food to add, to add flavor. It wasn't just sort of a very narrow band of the, of the culture that had access to, to flavor. Yes. Yeah. And, And it completely like, I didn't realise that paprika is quite... It's it's really young. It, it didn't come... Like, I sort of think of it as a very old, old European spice. ingredient. But it's it's a very young ingredient because it it was basically what they did to chilies once they got chilies. So. Yeah, okay. So it's their development. Mm. Well, I remember um, places like... I haven't been to Sicily, yeah. and I wish I had, but I like reading about it because... And there's other places in that Mediterranean region like this are crossroads. Yeah. So the people that came through Sicily were coming from North Africa yeah. and Middle East and Greece and Turkey. And, and so their culture, that they got hold of certain All the different, foods yeah. probably before a lot of other places. And maybe Northern Europe didn't get as much crossover. Yeah, well, it's all on where you are on those trade routes back then, yeah. isn't it? Because, you know, if you can... If you're... Um, carrying something and someone wants to buy it at your first stop and you can get your money and go back and get more then you'll sell it there rather than going all the way to Norway or Iceland or something like that (laughs) aren't you? Yeah absolutely. You know it it, it seems strange for a modern person to think that food was built like that because you know we can pretty much get anything we want all the time yeah Um, you know within within reason but like you know, you get cherries out of season and you can get any spice you want pretty much all the time now. Like, you know, salt used to be something that they paid people with and now, <laughs> you know, you stick it into a pool. <laughs> like the, uh, the the way food was built from some of that um that travel is really interesting. Very interesting, yeah. Well, I, I like all those stories. And, and see, that was all kind of... Um, even though people have been travelling for a long time, it's really only in the last 40 years that a lot of people could afford to travel. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot more understanding now. Yeah, there's that's so right. so much more movement. And, you know, some cultures are having to move, but like other cultures that are just inquisitive. He's so. one of my... Um, one of the, the kids I coach for, for Touch Footy, he's a bartender and he's doing, um, you know, c- cocktail... Um, competitions and he was talking to me about flavour profiles and and, um, he he wanted to do a sort of native thing based around pineapple and I said oh have you tried lemon myrtle no I never heard of lemon myrtle so I took him a 
a big clump off my tree and I got a, I got a Facebook message from him the other day. He's like, I can't stop using lemon myrtle in everything. All my cooking, all my drinks, it's just lemon myrtle everywhere. And I was, I was thinking it's it really cool because, you know, he'd never, but just the, the um, and it's a great one because, you know, you only just sort of touch it and with my young kids, I do it all the time, come past and rip a bit off and rub my fingers and stick it under their nose because it's just so... Um, yeah, such it's, a vibrant it's a scent. Great, heavy yeah. scent. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, that used to be produced up at uh, Imundi. Apparently, they had big factory for making lemon myrtle oil. Oh, okay. So it was really that. Then it closed down. I don't know what stage, oh, right. but I learnt that from just somebody. the esen- the essential oil. I don't know that it was essential oil. I actually think it was. Yeah, I would have to talk to the woman again, but yeah. that was an industry in that town. Yeah, right. That's amazing. And yet, and there was a lot of lemon myrtle trees around, but at some point, I don't know if it was before the 1960s or a long time before, they just let it go. Go, yeah. And now they'd probably make a killing. Yeah. Because um, I, I bought some, I think I bought 30 mils of, of um, essential lemon myrtle oil for 30 bucks or something. Yes. Because I'd be making my own soap. Oh, okay. Um, so, yeah, trying to put some put some native ingredients back into the soap. Oh, that um, sounds good. And eventually, I'll probably try and extract my own essential oil, but it's a bit of a pain in the ass to do. So, mm. yeah. have you heard of Dale Chapman? No. She's living up somewhere near um, Butterham. I'm not quite sure where, but she spent her early life. She became a chef. Yeah. And then, when she was in her twenties, she went to Paris. And she took some of the indigenous spices and things. So she kind of got known by French chefs for doing indigenous Australian things. Oh, okay. Which, you know, it's pretty unusual. Yeah, yeah. Um, And now she's probably in her 50s, but she's doing a lot of teaching. And she's got products she's developed. And, um, you know, she's just got a much bigger profile. It's growing all the time. But she's introducing people all the time to indigenous flavours and, yep. and options and, you know, how to cook and all that stuff. I love that crossover between, um, you know, so making something that's sort of not indigenous but then starting to pull indigenous things back in it. Like I made some um, harissa the other day, you know, the North oh, African yeah, spice yes. paste. Love it. And... Um, like, I normally put a fair bit of lemon zest in mine just to sort of give it a little bit of a different flavour. And I was like, I didn't have any lemons. I thought, oh, that's a bit of a pain. I thought, oh, I'll, I'll whack some lemon myrtle leaves in it and give that a try. <laughs> um, and it was really nice, but it was very different to the to the one on, which that is pretty much imagine. my cooking anyway. It's a yes. different every time. But yeah. Um, yeah, but I like those little things, that, you know, like using the macadamia nuts in the pesto or, you know, not sticking to the you know, to the strict, you know, this is must be be what's in it sort of thing. Yeah, trying different things. Yeah, the macadamia story is a little bit kind of, well, lucky, lucky we did something about it in time, but you know how they they ended up in Hawaii and they got ignored here. Oh, right. So the Hawaiians got them onto a kind of commercial scale market. Yeah, right. Whereas there might have been some activity here, but there wasn't much. And then at some point, somebody in Australia has gone, what have we done? They're actually a native tree. Yeah, and they're really native to this area. And in fact, like the wild species are somewhere around the Gold Coast. Yeah. And then up around um, the back of um, Mooloolaba and places like that, like around that river area. Yeah. And they're working really hard as a society now to get hold of the, the, old the, spe- the, the wild species. Yeah. So that they kind of look after them because, and this is a global thing that's happened. And the organisation that, that works with that seed bank up in the up in Norway, they work with the Millennium Seed Bank that Kew Gardens runs because they're trying to get hold of all the wild species. Yeah, to try and look at the, yeah, to to look at the evolution and how much it's changed and where it's come from. Yeah, and to actually save those species so that if there's you know whether it's wheat or whether it's macadamia or whatever but if climate change affects the uh, very hybridized versions that we now have of a lot of crops they they're hoping to go back and be able to tap into this wild what they call wild relatives yeah and i I suppose a lot of those wilder ones adapt 
a lot better, than, better. than the, the commercial ones because yeah. the commercial ones are sort of made for that narrow band. I saw a winemaker today post that they were harvesting two different varieties of grape at pretty much the same time this year, which they'd never done before. You know, they normally yeah, okay. they normally come on at completely different times and just the, the weather this year, they were harvesting at the same time. So. Well, the wine industry is really affected already by climate change. Yeah. And well, there's a lot of articles. I noticed the Australian was running a big article the yeah. other day about it. Well, we can be a little bit more flexible in Australia because you just change the type of grape that you grow if the climate changes. But in Europe, where you, you, the grape's tied to the region. Oh, if, yeah, if, absolutely. You can't just yeah. pull out all the Merlot grapes in one particular region and grow something else because they're supposed to come from that region. Like They're yeah. really tied into their... Um, you know, they're sort of locked in a little mm. bit. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, yeah. And the other thing in Europe is, um, like anything that's in the alpine regions, is really endangered because you can't you can't go, you any, can't further go up. any further up. So <laughs> I remember talking to someone at Kew who was from Sardinia, and he was saying that he was involved in a European um, organisation to save wildflowers. Yeah. And he just said it's uh, they were losing so many species because. The mountains weren't yeah. pristine. And I guess that that's where they're hoping the they seed were. bank. Yeah. You, you know, once, if, if it does reverse and go back the other way, they can sort of hopefully repopulate. Yeah. Well, yeah. Gosh, I mean, they're not doing, they're finding it hard to do the research to keep up with yeah. the change. Because one thing I got really involved in at Plant Bank was the Rainforest Seed Project. Because Queensland's got some of the best rainforest area in Australia, and then that strip in northern New South Wales, yeah, um, especially around the Tweed River, that's the area that the plant bank guys are going to because they're not really supposed to go into Queensland, but they would love to, yeah, because they they actually said since they've been doing this project over the last four or five years, they've realised you can't just put rainforest species seeds into the freezer. They're so moist ah, right. that they actually don't. Most, uh, very work. few of them don't get saved that way. So yeah. what they have to do is try everything. So they put them in the nursery. Yeah. They put them in the tissue culture lab. They put them into cryogenics, which is like extreme option. Yeah. Um, just you know, yeah, that's really space interesting. And, and it's, it's so they're in trouble. They, they like got... rainforest species are actually. And the other thing you said was all around the world. There's hardly any research being done, and yet we rely on rainforests for oxygen and, you know, like the support system. How are those guys down there worried about lantana? Is it, does that feature fairly heavily on there? Oh, yeah, because they're in the Cumberland Plains. So yeah. if you know Sydney and you go out west, yeah. southwest in Sydney, there was this very rich farming land that the first, like MacArthur, went to and set up farms near where Plant Bank is now, Camden. Yeah. And, um, you know, really great land has turned into farmland, but now it's actually 95% of it has become housing. Yeah. So, is... so that's the battle that they're having. They're having either in, um, invasive species take over the landscape yeah. or oh. housing projects. Yeah. <laughs> I, I used to do a run through uh, Redlands and you just look at the soil oh, there yeah, and you just go, how, can we, how did we ever build houses on it? Yeah. Um, and my mum's the same with sort of up through Gympie and that way, like all the dairy farms up through there. And she's like, how are they building houses on this land? You know, you're just not going to get soil like that. Very you, poor you, priority you can't, for the future. Can't, like, you can't sort of make soil like that in a day. No, so. no it's really not thinking. Mm. And, yeah, it's disturbing people. Well, they had pretty good um, laws in place in Queensland, but they've reversed them. Yeah. So apparently the land clearing that was happening in Queensland was um, sort of pushed back and back and became more, you know, considered and all this legislation to make sure that things were done properly. It's just been thrown Throwing out. out. So yeah. it's kind of... And they're really worried about the northern Queensland... Um, farming industry, yeah, um, because they've just got to, you know, look at how they're dealing with the land because it's you know run off into the Great Barrier Reef area. Yeah. Oh, there's so many complications. Like but. even my place is really interesting because we've got quite heavy lantana because and not I haven't got any almost no big trees. I've got one big Morton Bay fig, 
and that's it because our place was a banana plantation in the 30s I think Um, so they like it was bananas and then I think obviously didn't become economical to grow bananas so it just turned into whatever and you know that's that sort of thing for Lantana to come back in through is just you know pure gold so I've got a little bit of rainforest down the the bottom which I sort of protect and try and keep the Lantana out of yes and then it's just yeah and then I've got cows so I try and push the Lantana back and grow more native grasses and or any grass at all yes um and I'm growing a bit of um I'm pretty sure it's native the pigeon pea oh yeah that's supposed to be very good yeah cows love that and it's and it establishes quite well because it does have a it's got a lot of seeds yeah um isn't that one of those staple crops in africa a lot of people eat it uh yeah they make um uh what do they make out of it oh it's not it's not um i've got tofu on my head and it's not Mm. that um the one they use for chickpea Oh, they make like a hummus. Like a hummus out of it, I think, oh, yeah. Oh, that's good. Um, but the yeah. chooks also love it too. I grow it in my chook pen and the, the, yeah. seeds, the seeds fall down and they, um, you know, they, they love those. So. Yeah. Mm. You know what I was going to mention? Uh, the chocolate, so cacao. Mm. Um, apparently, I know there's a cacao tree out at the Botanic Gardens in their big um, dome. You know yeah. how they've got that rainforest yeah. space? That's really interesting to see them. You know how they grow with the cacao pods coming off the trunk of the tree. No, so a little bit like the um, like the plum, because that's yeah, how that's they right. grow. A yeah. lot of tropical species don't have um, the fruit, fruit growing the on the ends of the branch. Yeah. They actually grow off the entire trunk and, and off some of the main branches. The branches, yeah. But this is a really interesting story. This is where education becomes everything. I heard that the Rainforest Alliance, it's an Australian organisation, was spending time in countries that were um, chocolate-growing areas. Now, maybe... I don't think Uganda's one of them. uh, I'm just trying to remember the name of it. But what they did is they teamed up with the chocolate company in UK, Mars. Mars is American, but they did end up in UK as well. And they started a biodiversity division because they... They looked at the future and thought, we're not going to have chocolate in 10 years if we go the way we're going. So what they did with this Australian Rainforest Organisation is they went in and taught people how to grow it. Because they were, you know, this is a classic example. A single mother with a couple of kids looks at her land, it's rainforest land, she's got a little plot, and she thinks, if I grow cacao, it's very popular, it's in demand, I'll make some money, which I need for my family. So she absolutely... You know, took everything off the land, yeah, so it was and, just soil. Yeah, and just planted, and then the crop was scorched and died straight away. Yeah. And what they've been going in and showing people is to leave the rainforest intact, and then just to plant in the understory. Then they can yeah, harvest, but, make money, basically and, integrate it rather yeah, than. That's right. And I've even seen we we were taught um, some of the stuff in the permaculture where even broad crops where um, there was guys growing. So they might be growing, growing cabbages, but instead of growing 500 rows of cabbages in a row, you grow five rows of cabbages and then you grow um, some herbs that, that basically the either the, the moths will go to or the yes. moths don't like that. or And so you're losing sort of a tenth of your space, but you're increasing your yield by almost 200% because... <laughs> you're not and, and you're not and you're not having to spray as much so yes. spraying pesticides are one of the biggest sort of inputs into to growing food yes um yeah so i thought that and that's really you know it it seems really easy but um i, I guess it someone has to, like you said someone has to go and teach them yeah so. it's very important crucial education isn't it yeah and, and the whole thing is i've spent a lot of time in six years I've gone into schools and I've gone and done public talks or whatever, or I've I've been online and you know shared a lot of material because I realised if if you just mention the word biodiversity, 
Some people will know exactly what that is, but yeah. other people go, well, what is that? And what does it look like? Yeah. And, you know, so I was always talking about, well, for example, what do you put on your plate at dinner time? Yeah. You know, like I grew up where there was maybe some chops and there was carrots, potato and peas or something like similar. Yeah. And, and what I was explaining to people is if you put biodiverse products on your plate that were sustainable products yeah. and you found a way to make them really delicious and interesting. But the more interesting you make your food... Yeah, the more interesting it is for you. You are actually supporting the um, likelihood of that species remaining yeah. on the planet. That's right. And well, that's the difference between us switching off and not being aware... Well, that, that's why, even though it probably cost me a little, every time I see an interesting apple or an interesting potato, particularly those two, I think they're the more sort of passionate ones. It's like, I'll just grab them because, you know, it really worries me that one day we're going to just have three types of potatoes and two, you know, a green apple and a red apple and that's going to be it. And yeah. It's going to be pretty damn boring. So. Well, for a lot of people, they don't really understand no, more just, than that. No. So that's where it takes a lot of education. Yeah. Because like I, I have been a teacher at times. I've needed to make money. I've gone back into schools. I've done casual teaching. And I lived in the Hunter Valley for a, in the 2000s. Yeah. And I remember one day I had to teach home science. And I was kind of a little bit shocked because one lesson involved how to shop at the supermarket. <laughs> and because I grew up in a country town and I knew lots of people that were either on farms or thought farming was good and I've always had friends that were into yeah. growing things, I just thought, wouldn't it be more inspiring to teach about all the different diverse foods and, and like what you well, know like gives this, us health and what is biodiverse and what's good for the planet and... All those kind of lessons. The smartest thing that they've ever done is that kitchen garden program. Well, exactly. You know, where... Yes. You know, like I know with my kids, if it comes off a tree, then it usually doesn't make it back to the kitchen. Yes. Um, you know, if it comes out of a bag, then it's... You know, they'll eat it, but it's not as, as interesting or as... Well, it just doesn't have as much flavour, so... Yes. Yeah. Anyway, got to, got to keep going. Thank you very much for coming, Sophie. Have you got anything coming up that you would like to plug? Oh, well, I, I'll just mention I've been doing my classes now on seeds. I developed a program. So this, this program is teaching seeds through an artist's lens. So people oh, okay. come and yeah. they're actually doing a whole lot of art processes and they're looking at seeds as a subject. Yeah. Now, it sounds kind of like, oh, that's a bit boring, a bit kind of whatever. But I'm finding as people kind of get into it they're yeah. getting really excited because one they learn what seeds and plants are in their locality or what i'm doing now is i'm going to the botanic gardens and i'm actually running these courses like with plant bank or i'm going to melbourne botanic gardens and i'm doing it with their seed project yeah. so it means that some of the scientists get involved they might come and talk to the people in the class and it's a way of getting People, people. Have, I mean, there's always there's been botanical illustration yeah. that's been popular with some people for a long time, but this is much, much more relaxed. And there's a lot of learning that happens. They're having fun. They're experimenting with drawing and painting and all the rest of it. But um, it's helping people to understand something more about plants and seeds. And I decided when I have an exhibition coming up that I would actually call it the same title um, through an artist's lens because. Uh, I've done so much work over the last six years exploring seeds and looking at all the different views, the x-ray yeah, um, like camera. Yeah, the, the like, x-ray ones of the seeds were very cool. So. Yeah, and you know, and I found ways to um, look at the cross-section of seeds and see the patterns in them. So I've done all this very different kind of artwork that some of it was innovative, some of it was a bit different from what people have seen before. And I'm having an exhibition at Plant Bank in March. Okay. So, so where... people can find out about that if they go to my website. Yeah. And what's that? And what... Sophie Munns uh, at Weebly.com. And it's, well, if you Google Sophie Munns, M-U-N-N-S, and I'll put a link in the show notes yeah, as well. Yeah, so. that's right. It, all I have to do is Google Sophie Munns or Homage to the Seed project it comes up because right. i'm online i'm on instagram facebook all that sort of thing so we'll find you somewhere yes thanks excellent. sophie <laughs> pleasure